Welcome to the Creative Playground. This episode's guest is David Robert Farmery, a professional photographer whose work spanned across fashion, music, politics, and business before settling comfortably into the parallel avenues of photojournalism, documentary, and fine art photography. I firmly believe that that life is a suit and that every experience that we have in our lives is an ingredient into that soup. Some ingredients are good and some aren't good. And the key is to fill our soup with only good ingredients so that at the end of our life, we can present that cauldron of soup to those that we leave behind. And, uh, you know, doing the work that I have done and I continue to do provides me with a, a boatload of great ingredients. David Robert Farmerie on this episode of The Creative Playground. First, let me tell you how much your words affirming the initial episode of The Creative Playground meant to me. I'm grateful to each who took the time to listen and then respond. I will continue to do my best to make this brief time together meaningful, beneficial, and fun. I'm looking forward to sharing this episode for a couple of reasons. First, a good friend and professional photographer, David Robert Farmerie, will visit and share some thoughts about creativity, photography, growing up, and cultures, among other things. He's a fun guy, and I'll have him back again in the future in some creative ways I'm dreaming up. I recently participated in a three-day writing event from the Spalding School of Creative and Professional Writing, and I'm really energized. The timing of the conference in these podcasts is purely serendipitous, but the energies are wonderfully entwined. And I think that's important, not just for me, but I believe that we need some serendipity in our creative lives but I need to share a secret just between you and me. Okay. Creativity is always there. Maybe it's on a slightly different plane, but it's there for me. Creativity does not jump out and wave her arms. It doesn't send off fireworks or alarms. Creativity doesn't compete. Creativity just is cool. Ever present waiting for you to notice creativity whispers but only when you're ready to listen. And that's a beautiful thing if you think about it. We live in a loud world. Today's world is analogous to Las Vegas. Now, actually, I've been to Vegas three times and enjoyed each one, but as the old cliche goes, it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Sorry, listeners in Vegas, but I'm only really talking about the Strip. I'm sure there are other wonderful areas that I've not experienced and if you want to send me ideas or even suggest dates for a possible meetup or photo walk, I might be game once I'm traveling again. We live in a world that never sleeps. We have 24-hour stimulation, entertainment, and connection. For the privilege, we have unending and immediate access to anything we desire. Now, I'm not here to condemn the times because first it would be hypocritical to complain when the only way I can be sharing this podcast is because of our digital and internet technology. Second, there's a lot of good that's going on because of our advancements. However, like most everything else, you have to be discerning. It's easy to be pulled in so many directions, each using targeted research and technology designed to push our buttons and pull us toward that which scratches an itch. Not only does creativity not compete, it doesn't try. Remember the whisper part? 
But here's a beautiful thing. Creativity never, ever, ever gives up either. It's always there waiting for us. It's waiting for us to still ourselves and to look inward. For me, creativity speaks mostly through my subconscious, which is in a constant battle with my ego. My ego says, I know what's best. I got this. And the subconscious whispers, you wish. And then I must act. Think about it. Most of you who have successful creative lives are successful because you've been intentional. You've carved out sacred spaces, void of distractions and noise. And that's what our playground time is all about. Space, time, and ideas. Remember our homework from episode 101? If not, I ask you to write down some of your favorite memories and things you experienced as a child. And I hope this was fun. But more than that, I hope that you'll begin to rediscover what you considered play as a child. What brought you joy as a child? For this episode, I'm encouraging you to think and free write about what it was in those times that made it so much fun. Did you love to color or paint? Maybe you were good at horseback riding. Maybe you put puzzles together or shot hoops or played soccer or created art. If you can recall some of the things that brought you joy back then, you might just be able to find elements that you can then bring forward to your current creative life. My friend and co-facilitator Dave DeGolier and I have been leading the West of the Moon Creative Retreats in New Harmony, Indiana for eight years until 2020, of course, stopped everything. We'll return for our ninth year in 2022. The mornings of our retreat begin with yoga, led by the wonderful Kat Khan, who, by the way, has her own podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. And then after breakfast, we would begin our sessions with our retreaters just playing by coloring in coloring books. It's mostly quiet time, but there's usually some giggling going on, and slowly adults rediscover something that nourishes them as they put colored pencils and inks to paper. And if you watch them, it's almost as if they begin to transform back into children, smiling and laughing, following the spirit, whether coloring inside or outside the lines. You can do this too. Between now and the next episode of The Creative Playground, think about what you loved as a child and play with some notes and ponder elements that made those activities fun and memorable. And don't forget to send me the notes. Today as I write this, it's Father's Day here in the States, a good time to slow down and ponder about the parent-child relationship. We tend to associate creativity with the arts, and certainly there's a reason for that. But it's times like today that remind me of how creativity can be a part of everything we do. I remember when my oldest son was born some years ago, and the saying was, well, that was great, but he did not come with an operator's manual. I once read that love is the most creative endeavor we'll ever experience, and now at my age, I believe it's true. You can't write a manual because every child is created as an individual. Every experience between parent and child is new for each. Even the repetitive engagements are different every time. I really believe that if you want to experience the essence of creativity, love another so much that it compels you to discover new ways to engage in relationship with them. As a parent, I needed to constantly grow and develop at least as much as my children as we work through our relationships. Much like our relationship with the divine, 
however you define that for you. Shy away from fixed answers in favor of better questions from which to learn, which will lead you to even better questions. I believe what I'm trying to say is that in many ways, this form of creativity was demonstrated throughout 2020 in the pandemic. Yes, it's been and continues to be incredibly difficult for everyone, but for this illustration, I want to talk about parents and children and creativity. So many found ways to either work from home or cobble together some form of income to survive. They homeschooled energetic children, kept everyone fed, and tried to remain mostly sane through an unbelievable election year. 2020 did not come with an operator's manual either, and yet, most loved hard enough to find creative ways not only to survive, but to create environments that never before existed, at least during our lifetimes, and from which we crossed and stretched the boundaries of our previous thinking. Now, does that mean that everything was fun and shiny and wonderful? No. Creativity is not always about making the beautiful. Sometimes it can be about rendering the previously unsalvageable into something beautiful, and that's often discovered in hindsight. And so, on this and every day, here's to those who love hard enough to create new avenues into relationships, in different forms, in different ways, with those as close as a kiss, and those separated from us by lands and oceans. Now it's time for our visit with photographer David Robert Farmerie, and I posed him the same question I've been asking you. What did you love to do as a child? You know, as a child, I spent most of my time outside. I was I was blessed to have parents that really let me find my own way to a large extent. And so for me, I would play in the small patch of woods that weren't far from the house. I learned to swim in the Ohio River to the disappointment of my mother. Do you remember your first photograph? And what I mean by that is perhaps one not that you took, but just in growing up, just the photographs, family, any other kind. Do you remember a photograph that impressed you early on? I think my answer is going to be a little different in the sense that when I was really young, you know, four years, five years old, my dad had a camera. And he was an avid photographer, uh, an amateur. And I would always play with the film. I was intrigued by it. But then when my dad died, when I was 11, I grabbed his camera and I tried to use it. And of course, I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about settings. I knew nothing at all. And so I just started making pictures by pressing the button. And I sent the, took the film to the drugstores, black and white film, and, and I had it developed. And it came back, and of course, there were no usable photographs except for one. And it was blurry, and it was uh, off exposure, but it was magic to me. And one, it was magic because it connected me with my dad. And magic also because, you know, in looking back, and I've I've, I've looked back on this many times over my adult years, is, you know, I really believe that, that I was put put on this earth to make photographs, to make images and tell stories. And I think that was the the magic that I felt in looking at that photograph and realizing that I had made that, even though it wasn't any good, has always stuck with me. And, and that is probably my favorite photograph other than 
a photograph I saw once, a, a photographic print that my dad had taken uh, of a Halloween party where a group of them were dressed in odd-looking pajamas sitting at a bar drinking alcohol. And I, don't know, I was always intrigued by that as well. And, it, and believe it or not, it inspired me because what I realized again as I became a successful photographer is that reflecting back on the photographs I saw that my dad made, he had this uncanny ability to capture emotion and to tell stories, which is what I do. So I guess those are the two favorite photographs uh, and probably the two most influential of my life. When you got that first image back, do you feel as if that kick-started you in your direction as a photographer, or was there a period of time between that and when you thought more seriously about photography? Yeah, you know, in fact, it's kind of ironic that I had that magical moment in seeing that. At best, I had just turned 12 years old. I may have still been 11, but then, you know, I, I kind of left it. And I carried his camera every once in a while because there was something about it. But again, I think the connection was to him. In junior high school and then when I went into high school, I had friends who were in the, the photography club. And they were always trying to get me to join. And, and every time they would, I'd say, you know, yeah, no. I said, you got to be a little, a little odd to be doing that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was into cars. And then how ironic that, you know, after, I, well, actually, it's towards the end of my time in the military, uh, someone introduced me to the black and white film darkroom on base. And they showed me how to develop film. And I had a 110 camera and I put black and white film in. I developed it and I made prints. And there again, you know, I was, I was struck by the magic of the whole process. And then when I got out of the military, I ended up buying a camera and uh, that was the beginning of my, my career as a photographer. Well, between the time that you had the experience with that first image and your time in the military where you started to come back to it, did you consider yourself a creative person or did you have creative outlets during that uh, interim? No. I mean, you know, I suppose that I had creative tendencies, I guess you would say, that manifested themselves in all kinds of different ways. But did I ever consider myself creative? No, I never thought about it. And really and truly, even after I decided to become a photographer, I didn't consider myself creative. But I didn't consider myself not creative either. I never considered it. And even to this day, I don't know that I really consider myself either. I mean, I know, I know now emphatically that I, I am a creative person, but it's, it's sort of irrelevant to me. I never sit down and say, wow, you know, I'm really creative, or I wish I was more creative, or any of those things. I just, I really don't consider myself creative. It's just the way I am. So just in your own words, in your own experience, how do you define creativity? I believe creativity is, is something that takes many, 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 many forms. And I think in our society, people tend to place that creative label on people who are artists, people who paint or sculpt, sometimes with photography, although that's hit or miss in people's minds. But creativity also or also shows up in so many of life's nuances that have nothing to do with art per se. 
one of the things I find where creativity really rises up is, is in cooking or gardening or flower arranging or, you know, sitting down and just taking in a sunrise or a sunset. And even though you're not doing anything other than watching, observing this sunrise or this sunset, there's a creative connection there. And, and, and to me, it's one of the most magical. Uh, so again, I think to be creative doesn't mean that one needs to create, but they need to engage in the process of creation, which is all around us. You're talking about some of the things, and first of all, I totally agree with you. Creativity it can be involved with everything we do and is part of the essence of who we are. But some of the things you mentioned are some of the things that I observe that not only you do, but you're very good at, such as cooking and gardening. And you do writing. Uh, you also do some teaching. There are other things as well. When you are experiencing those things, for example, gardening, what does that bring to you? What does that do for you when you're in, taking care of your garden? It rejuvenates my soul. I mean, literally, it, it may sound esoteric or you know, kind of over the top, but it's the truth, is the process of gardening for me is engaging, again, in that process of creation. And not creation in the art sense, but creation is in, you know, the world around us, that realm that we don't see, that we can only experience. And then, you know, the other aspect of gardening for me is the, the culmination of the garden, that when everything is grown and it's in bloom and as you know, you know, I spend a lot of time on the road with my work, and even though I enjoy it greatly, uh, one of the things I really love is when I come home and I, I walk up my front walk and my garden is in bloom all around me. One, there's the beauty, the physical beauty of seeing all of this in bloom, the colors and the textures and everything else, but even more so for me, it's the, the awareness of life. That, you know, I walk up my walkway and I am literally surrounded by life in the process. And that has an instant effect on the rejuvenation of my soul, my very being. Just like you have diverse interests outside of photography, you really do have a diverse resume as far as your photography is concerned. I mean, you've done fashion, you've done music, of course, documentary, which you currently do as well, covered presidents. You have documented cultures. Do you find common ground among those or primarily differences? How do you view those things when you go out and tackle those different genres of photography? I have found, for me personally, the common thread through all of them has been that I have always strived to tell a story. So if I was, literally, if I was photographing a refrigerator, say, for, for Westinghouse, even though it's this stagnant very sterile kind of photograph to make is I tried to create a story within the photograph itself. And with fashion, of course, I always strive to tell the story, to create a story around what I was photographing, the clothing or the whatever it was I was photographing. Music, the same thing is when I would photograph bands on tour, it was my objective, I guess you would say, was to tell the story of what it was like to be there viewing, seeing that, experiencing that concert, or when I would make photographs, you know, backstage, in the dressing rooms, on the buses, whatever, is to try to tell that complete story of what it's like for them to be on the road. So that's been the common thread. But I have to also say that 
With fashion and music, which is what I started my career in, I did both of those sort of simultaneously for about three years. And I came to a breaking point where I just walked away from it. And I gradually, I literally just walked away from it. And it was because there were other aspects of it that I did not like, that did not feed my soul, so to speak. So I left those behind. Then, of course, you know, I went into the commercial work, the advertising, and the same thing. It didn't really feed my soul. In photojournalism and documentary, that's where I've stayed for the majority of my 40, I don't know, it's 42 years, something like that, I've been doing this. Uh, the majority of that has been with photojournalism and documentary because that has been what feeds my soul. But also, I have learned so much because even though I'm technically out making photographs and telling the story, I am constantly interacting with people and people of different cultures and different beliefs and different thought processes. I'm growing each and every time. So those, again, are, are my greatest loves. A lot of what you have done involves people and not just people such as street photography, but also interacting with people, shooting a model in fashion, for example, or working with people in the Pittsburgh Ballet, or you've done a project in Appalachia, you've done tobacco farmers in Tennessee, Native Americans in the Dakotas and the American Southwest. What commonality do you find among these diverse groups of people, or do you find commonality? I find some commonality between all of the indigenous cultures. And I consider the, the work I did with the, the people of Appalachia in uh, southeastern Kentucky primarily, even though they're not technically an indigenous culture, I really classify them as such because they resettled here very autonomously, intentionally, and started a new culture out of the culture that they left behind. And, but the, the commonality that I find that I have found throughout every single indigenous culture is authenticity. And that's a word that I use often, but it's a, an important word to me because, you know, one thing I learned early on, and even in Appalachia, is that when you're working with indigenous people who live authentically, if you are inauthentic, in other words, if you lie or you kind of misrepresent or you have hidden agendas, they know it. They figure it out really quick. And then once they do, then they shut down and you can never gain their trust. And then you can never tell their stories. So in working with these people, I had to be completely authentic. And in doing that, that's a way of life for me now that, that that's how I live my life. But with, within the other genres of photography that I worked with, no. In fact, you, know, you had mentioned fashion, for instance. And fashion <laughs> and, the, and the music industry, and again, the, the rock music industry especially, but I think all music, is those two are, to me, are the epitome of inauthenticity. It was just fraught with with that, within authenticity. And, and that's primarily the reason that I left both of those. So again, yeah, the, the common thread runs through the indigenous cultures. And, and, and as you know, I'm currently, even as we do this interview, I'm in Northern Arizona and I'm working with, uh, on a project with a Navajo. And, and it's, it's amazing to see that even with the, these people who have been sort of assimilated into Western culture, that they have maintained their culture 
as well, their ancient culture. And if you are inauthentic with them, they pick it up like within two or three heartbeats. And, and if they detect it again, you're locked out and you'll never get unlocked. So it's been really rewarding to be a part of this. In interacting with these people, and, and you're a storyteller, we've, we've talked about that, and we'll be putting links to David's blog and his podcast and all of his work in the show notes below, so you'll get to experience some of this. But in terms of working with some people, do you have one or two people with whom you've worked that really kind of stand out to you, any kind of story or just a character or personality that just you think of every now and again of someone that you photographed? Unfortunately for, for you and your time constraints on this, this, this interview, there are so many, but you know, one that really sticks with me. Well, there are two that I'll talk about here. The one is more recent, and she is actually a Navajo woman. She's 84 years old. Her name is Helen Gray Eyes, and I have had the great privilege of getting to know her and her family, uh, so much so that I am now considered an in-law, uh, which is a great honor. But Helen is, again, she's 84 years old, 83 or 84, I think 84 now, traditional Navajo, has never been to school. She does not speak a word of English. She only speaks Navajo. She lives as a traditional Navajo woman. She lives by herself. She raises sheep. And one of the things that amazed me the most about Helen, and believe me, there are so many things that amaze me about Helen, is that every morning, winter, spring, summer, fall, Helen gets up out of bed, and mind you, Helen lives in Blue Gap, Arizona, and she lives seven or eight miles after the paved road ends. So she's out there. And anyhow, every morning when she gets up, she, she gets dressed, she feeds the dogs, and then she runs one mile down the road and runs one mile back, and then she herds her sheep. I just find that truly amazing. And the other person, he's been deceased for many years, but his name was Chunkin Viejo. And Chunkin was the elder, the political and spiritual elder of a group of Maya called Lacandon who live in the rainforest, southern Chiapas on the border of, of Mexico and Guatemala. And they are part of the Maya that were never conquered by the Spanish conquistadors because the conquistadors said... Well, you know, they're savages. They live out in the, this jungle and they'll just die off if we just, just leave them alone. The real reason that the conquistadors left them alone is because they couldn't fight them because their gunpowder didn't work in the rainforest. But anyhow, they never died off, although they are un, virtually extinct now. There are probably about 12 or 15 left. But I got to know Chan Keen. Again, he had been the spiritual elder of the Lacandon tribe of Naha for, I think, 84 years at the time. When Chun Keen died, well, actually, when I met him, he was between 106 and 116 years old. They don't keep real strong track of age. And he had, at the time, he had 32 children. And you say, wow. And he had four wives. But the thing that really amazed me even more than this is that at the time, again, when I knew him, his youngest son was seven, so he fathered that child when he was somewhere between 99 and, what, 109 years old, and that was just pretty doggone remarkable. But anyhow, you know, he was this fascinating man. When Chun King would look at, at the glyphs, the Mayan glyphs that were on the steles at the ruins, he could read those like you or I read a book, and he knew all the ancient ways. And once I gained his trust, 
he was very gracious in opening those ways up to me and teaching me a lot of the ways of the ancient Maya. And this actually happened to be, when I met him, it was probably about four years, give or take, three years, I guess, before that whole end of the Mayan calendar. You know, the Mayan calendar comes to an end in, what was it, 2014 or something. I forget the exact date now. It's going to be the end of the world and this and that. And and I remember one day talking with John Keen, and I said, so John Keen, I said, what's the deal with this Mayan calendar? And he explained it to me. And, he, and basically, in short, I mean, he went into detail, but in short, he said, it doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It doesn't mean it's the end of time. It's going. It means it's the end of things as they've been, and there will be a change. And that's all we can say. And of course, you know, we came to within, you know, months and weeks, then days and hours of this Mayan calendar coming to an end and everybody, especially in sort of metaphysical world, was all in a panic that the, you know, they were going to, the world wasn't going to be there the next day. And of course he was right. Both of those people, as well as so many others, have really just changed my life. We'll return to our talk with photographer David Robert Farmerie in just a moment. But I wanted to remind you that you are an important part of this podcast. If you have thoughts about this or any episode or guest or a suggestion for a guest or anything else regarding creativity, please send them to me at terry at terryprice.net or join the Creative Playground private Facebook group. Links in the show notes. And now back to David. You know, one of the things that I think I've said to you in the past, Terry, is that I firmly believe that that life is a soup and that every experience that we have in our lives is an ingredient into that soup. Some ingredients are good and some aren't good. And the key is to fill our soup with only good ingredients so that at the end of our life, we can present that cauldron of soup to those that we leave behind. And, uh, you know, doing the work that I have done and I continue to do provides me with a, a boatload of great ingredients. I am truly blessed that I have had mostly great experiences. So right now, when David Robert Farmerie wakes up in the morning, what's the thing that gets you excited about the day? What gets you excited about, about getting up? I think just that, and, and I mean that sincerely, is just getting up. And okay, here's a new day. What can happen today? What can I discover today? What can I experience today? And also, how can I be of service? How can I help others today? In small ways, in large ways, it doesn't matter. But those are the things that go, that go through my, not so much go through my mind, but yeah, they're very much a part of my, somewhere between my conscious and subconscious. I don't dwell on them or think, okay, what can I do today? How can I do this today? I just do it. It's just part of, of my day. And I let the day unfold. And, you know, sometimes I plan a day, you know, again, like last Saturday, I had to plan a day. It was a shoot. But even in planning that, I, the only planning I did is that I have to be there at a certain time. And aside from that, I showed up when I was supposed to be there and then just let everything unfold. Because with that kind of work, there's no way to preconceive that, to say, okay, well, I want to do this and do this. You have to just see it and then sort of grab it or work with it in little ways as you go along. 
It's about creativity and in line with the title of your podcast, A Creative Playground, which, by the way, is such a, a phenomenally appropriate title for this podcast that you're doing. And that's what creativity should be, is it should be like jumping into the middle of a playground. And yes, if we want to perfect uh, or hone a craft or to say, you know, we want to become a better painter, a better photographer, whatever it is, sure, we need to practice and we need to engage in it. But the creative process is not an analytical process. The creative process is about just letting go. If we try to control it, then we put constraints on it. And if we just throw it to the wind and then follow where it blows, magic happens. And that is, I think, the greatest aspect of creativity is magic. That is what creativity is to me. It is magic. It's alchemy. It's the things that we can sit down at a lathe and make a little machine part, or we can do all of these things that are technical, and that's fine. And we may get satisfaction out of those, but to engage, fully engage in the creative process is to let the magic of that process fill us. And then we, in turn, become magic. And then we share that magic with everyone else. And that's what I encourage people to do. And and especially people that think that they're not creative. I firmly believe everybody has creativity in them, but you have to let go in order to experience it. I will also throw this caveat of warning in there that once you do this, make sure that your seatbelt is fastened (laughs) because the ride is unbelievably great and exciting. So that's the advice I would have for anyone listening. There's that beautiful tension between what you're describing, the kind of wild abandon, believing in the impossible, believing in, in all possibilities, and allowing yourself, like you say, to play, just to get out and, and experiment and play, and allowing that to fuel you, but also on the other side of that, when you do take a direction, is start to learn the craft of yes. whatever it is so that you can continue to grow and improve. And if you yes. lean too far one way with the inspiration, you don't learn the craft, then somehow you can start to feel as if you're an imposter. You're not really Mm -hmm. doing that. But on the other hand, if you get so immersed in the technology and the craft, especially nowadays where we have tools such as cameras that can do anything, you grab that too much, then you can lose your inspiration. You can rely too much on the technology to do the work and not bring that essence of who you are. You know, that's a great point. And I think the analogy I would give there is it's like the tire tracks in the dirt road. There are two tracks. There's a left and a right. And that's this process. The technical part of our creative process. So again, if we're photographers learning to hone our craft, if we're painters to learn how to hone that craft, that's the sort of technical and somewhat analytical side. But that needs to run parallel to the unabandoned. And the unabandoned side is what opens up possibilities that we need to be aware of so that when they arise, we can grab them and integrate those into the other side of honing our skills. They go hand in hand. But the other thing, too, that I I encourage people to do is that regardless of what genre, so to speak, you favor in the creative process is hone that craft, but also leave yourself open to all of the other types of creativity. So, 
say you're a photographer, okay, because that's that's what I am. Get out and listen to poetry, listen to spoken word, read novels, read biographies, you know, look, go to museums and look at paintings, look at sculptures, talk to other artists of other genres and find out what they're doing and why they're doing and how they're doing. And it will give you insights into your own creative process. And that's something that I find so many artists don't do. They lock themselves into, well, I'm a photographer, so I'm only going to look at the work of other photographers. I am a painter and I paint in oil, so that's what I'm going to look at. Well, you're missing the whole boat uh, because there are so many out there that can influence you and it doesn't take you away from the devotion to your specific craft. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And if you limit yourself to photography, then you limit yourself to the last 200 years, give yes. or take a little less, 150 years, uh, because that's yeah. you know pretty much when it became more commonplace. And so you eliminate the artist of the Renaissance and the sculptors and yeah. all the artists. It's I think that's great advice. Well, I appreciate this uh, opportunity to get to talk with you. A couple of relatively, I think, quick questions. Well, definitely the questions will be quick. In terms of the tools that you have used over the years, do you have a favorite camera? Hasselblad and an Icon F5. Okay. Any particular reason? Those re would be my two favorites. All right. It's the F5 was just, it was just a great camera. It was on, on so many levels. And with the Hasselblad, it's the aesthetics of using that camera. In fact, when I was making the informal portraits this past Saturday, I used a Hasselblad. And I had other film cameras that I could have used, but it was the Hasselblad, the aesthetics of that Hasselblad that added greatly to my creative experience in making those photographs. So yeah, I, I think that's a very important aspect of, of the creative process. And so film cameras. I still love shooting film. I think that no matter how great the quality of digital becomes, and it's pretty phenomenal right now, that there is still a nuance that film offers that digital will never be able to replicate. And not only that, but and again, for me, there is something about the aesthetics of knowing that there is film in there. There's something tactile in there that even though I can't see the result immediately like I do with digital, that when the film is exposed and then processed and I get it back in my hands, it is tactile. I can hold it. I can see it. I can feel it. I can smell it. If I put it in my mouth, I could taste it. And there is something so profound with that for me that I absolutely love shooting film. You know, the act of focusing a lens and the act of cranking the film and of composing and making a photograph with a film camera, and especially something like a Hasselblad or a view camera, is that it takes me from capturing a photograph to making a photograph. When I shoot with any of these cameras, I have to be very, very, very intentional. If you could go back and uh, put your hand on the shoulder of 12-year-old David and look over his other shoulder at that image, the first one, what would you say to him after these years? You're going to rock. <laughs> You know, because, and, and I'm serious about that yeah, to a large extent. I, I took that I mean, seriously. That because in thinking about that, and that's a great question that you posed, thank you, is that as a 12-year-old looking at that picture, had I known my future self, you know, the self I am now, that this was the path I was going to take, 
oh my, how that would have changed things in me. Would it have made me a better photographer now? I don't know, but it certainly would have changed things. And for me, at that age, especially having just lost my dad, what a great uplifting thing that would have been to know that all is going to be okay and that I will have the opportunity to maybe help change the world a little bit. So yeah, that would have been great. Yeah. By the same token, what would you say to your dad if you had that conversation now? Thanks. You know, thanks for everything and thanks for the influence. Thanks for letting me sit on your lap and unroll the long strips of negatives and look at them. Thanks for the photographs that you left behind for me to look at and to be inspired by. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Links to David's work and podcast are in the show notes, and I promise we'll hear more from David in future episodes, most assuredly over a good cup of coffee. Remember to send me your thoughts, ideas, and questions to terry at terryprice.net and join our private Facebook group for the Creative Playground, where we'll exchange ideas, thoughts, and share things that will help keep us all on our creative paths. Link in the show notes. You can also record a voice message or voice memo on your phone and email that to me as well. Send me your thoughts about the assignment or maybe what's working for you creatively or what's not. I promise that there's someone else who needs to hear of your successes and someone else who will totally identify with the bumps on your creative path. I thank you in advance for everything, including the honor of your time you spend with me. Until next time, I send you off with a piece of a stanza from one of the Hobbit walking songs in the novel, The Lord of the Rings. Still round the corner, there may wait a new road or secret gate. And though I have oft passed them by, a day will come at last when I shall take the hidden paths that run west of the moon, east of the sun. Music for the Creative Playground is from Artlist.io, and I look forward to sharing with you and hearing and learning from you next time on the Creative Playground.